Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brew Church Podcast. My name is Fabian. I am your host, and I'm glad that you are listening. If you would, please hit the plus button on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on Spotify as a way to help more people find this audio content. This audio is recordings from our Sunday gatherings. And if you would like to support what happens here on this podcast or in the Brew Church community in general, there's a giving button in the description of this. Uh, We hope that this is helpful for you and that you gain some good tools to lead to a life of abundance. Enjoy. So before I uh, bring uh, Dr. Mike Graves up here, I wanted to introduce uh, him a little bit, talk about how I met him. So I uh, met uh, Dr. Mike Graves before I met him in seminary, but like I said, I took one of his classes. Uh, He was my worship professor, which is basically uh, a class about how to plan gatherings like this, um, about as simple, you know, as I can describe it. But it was way more than that. It like got really philosophical, a little bit of history too. Um, but the thing that really like struck me about his class was we talked about how the early gatherings of Christians were basically these like dinner parties. Like, they hung out and, like, ate food and, you know, had some adult beverages, um, reclined in these upper rooms and had all these, like, deep conversations about being a human and how to follow this dude named Jesus who, um, as, you know, Gen Z kids would say, uh, moved differently. Um, If you don't know what that means, that just means he was unique. Um, So, (laughs) uh, yeah, Jesus moved differently. But um, I just, it, it really struck me that it was simple. Like, their gatherings weren't complex or weren't these sort of performative entertainment-based services. It was like getting together with a group of friends in a living room and talking about really meaningful, deep things. And that's sort of uh, some of what influenced what Brew Church is and the reason we have tables, the reason we're in this space. And, you know, we're, we're here hanging out. It's not really a dinner party, but it's similar to that where we're sort of just engaging in dialogue in these conversations. And so, yeah, that's that's uh, w- uh, some of what I learned. You know, there's more than that, but that was one of the biggest things. Uh, so a few facts about this is this is your resume here. As much as I could condense it, the things that I thought, um, you know, were pertinent. So uh, Dr. Graves attended seminary at uh, S- S- Bapti- Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. So... Uh, yes, he was um, uh, Southern Baptist at some point. I don't know if you'll share some of that story of what happened. Um, if you don't, then that's okay. You can ask him afterwards. Um, and then he moved to Kansas City in 1989. Does it feel like long ago? <laughs> uh, to take a position as a seminary professor, and this is where I met him. He served as the William K. Mc. Elvaney, I don't know how to say that, Emeritus Professor of Preaching and Worship at St. Paul School of Theology. Uh, he's an ordained minister in the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, and currently serves as a scholar in residence at Country Club Christian Church. Um, so he's written numerous articles, authored, co-authored, edir- edited several books, and so I'm just going to read a few of them, the first one being the one that really I kind of like inspired me was Table Talk, 
rethinking communion and community. So that's the one where we talked about how they gathered around in tables and um, how important that was. And there is the story of narrative, preaching, experience, and exposition. Uh, the fully alive preacher, that was another memorable one. Uh, what's the matter with preaching today? Didn't read that one, but that one sounds interesting. Um, and his most recent book, which he's going to mention, is Jesus' Vision for Your One Wild and Precious Life. Uh, which sounds wonderful. So that's sort of some of the topic of what he's going to talk about. So I'm going to invite Dr. Graves up. Let's give him a round of applause. So that, that's the picture of the church where I serve. Um, Country Club Christian Church is not a good name for a church. <laughs> unless you're going to put in a putting green and a, you know, a few holes of golf. Uh, but it's kind of like the Country Club Plaza, right? It's that area of town. But it's a little bit ironic because the book's really about Jesus' care for the poor and the marginalized. So a place called Country Club. <laughs> That's what it is. Um, I'm really happy to be here. I appreciate Fabian inviting me, uh, getting to hang out with you guys and see what this was about. And yes, we did have a class in which we talked about doing this very thing. And this very thing has probably 100 different expressions in different places. Um, but I'm happy to be a part of a brew church, and <laughs> I'll, um, I'll include that as we go. So, okay, if you want to turn the first slide. Um, if you, the book that's coming out, it's going to be out the, by the end of the year. This is the first two quotes you read. So, Jesus, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That sounds really good to me. That word life there is not the word like biology. It's like really living and but then there's this quote from uh, the poet Mary Oliver so is anybody ever heard of Mary Oliver oh my gosh that's great um, some people are allergic to poetry <laughs> and I get that but she would really change your world um, this poem called the summer day she says you know who made the world who made the black bear who made the grasshopper and she talks about this grasshopper in her hand and then she says, I don't know how to pray, but I know how to pay attention. And that's what I've been doing all day long. What else should I have been doing? Doesn't everything die too soon? And then this is the last line. Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And so to me, these two things really come together in the book. That's why I call it Jesus' vision for your one wild and precious life. So that's what we're going to talk about. Um, so next slide, please. So one of the book's questions is, if you had coffee with Jesus once a week for a six months, a year, whatever, what do you think would be your biggest takeaway? Um, and I don't mean like, oh, he, he's, he's decaf. He's always decaf. <laughs> or he always takes two sugars. You know, I don't mean that. Um, but do the next slide, too. Because if you'd rather, it could be wine with Jesus. But the point is, if you... If you hung around this guy, if, you know, if you chatted, what would, what would be your biggest takeaway? Okay, so then one more slide. I did this with a group of young guys in our church. We went to coffee ridiculously early in the morning, and I asked them this question, and this was what they asked back, which I thought was brilliant. I'd never thought of it this way. Are we back in Jesus' day, or has he come to our time? which is really interesting because 
is that we're back in Jesus' day, and he just keeps talking about how the Roman Empire has invaded their land, and they are under, I mean, this is like Ukraine, right, under Russians. This is the way they live, and you can't talk to somebody in Ukraine without them talking about Putin. Is, is it every conversation, he's always talking about the Roman Empire and what it's done to the people, or has he come to our day, and all he can talk about is Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. <laughs> That's just like everything he says. I cannot believe how this has taken off. Can you believe this? No. All right, so I really want you to try this, this question. It's, it's just really one question. If you hung around with Jesus for once a week, however often, for a year, how would you describe him to your friends? What do you think he'd be about? And one way you can try this is to say, well, Okay, tell somebody about somebody you do get together with for coffee pretty regular. Tell them about them. What would you tell them? Well, you'd say what their name is. You might tell them what part of town they live in, what they do for a living. But you'd eventually say, oh, and, and she's really into, or he, he really likes this, or whatever. Um, how would you describe what you think this Jesus might be like? Um, so this is the cover of the book that's coming out. And you probably can't read the little subtitle there in the orange of the sunset, but it says your one wild and precious life on things like poverty, hunger, polarization, inclusion, and more. So it sort of gives you a clue as to which direction I'm heading with this um, interpretation. But I want to tell you how the book came about. My brain's a little weird. You ever heard of the seven last words of the Christ? Have you ever heard of that? Sometimes in churches, there's bunches of books, bunches of studies, mostly in the spring leading up to Easter, they'll do the seven last words, and words really means phrases or sayings, but on the cross, Jesus says seven things, and so these people for years, I mean for thousands of years, have done the seven last words of Jesus. This is what he said when he was dying. Well, my brain, being weird, thought at one point, what about the seven first words? And I didn't even know what I meant by that. I just knew I didn't mean his last words. And so I started playing with the idea of the first words of Jesus. That, yeah, if you open the Bible and you started reading the gospel, oh, there's his first word in Matthew or whatever. But I took it a little further than that. So next slide and I'll show you. I had two theses and they're very different than what maybe some of us grew up with. I don't think Jesus was born to die. I don't think he came to die. I think he got killed for the way he lived. The Roman Empire was not going to let somebody convert tax collectors and change the e economics of it all, and they put him to death. And I don't think we were born just to die. I mean, that's not why we're here. Um, going back to that little quote from John 10, you know, Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. not the next life, this life. Um, and so at one point I even, at the top it says what Jesus can teach us about life before death instead of just this whole preoccupation with death. So one more slide. So I had two criteria when I came up with it was, okay, if it comes early, that matters. So like in the Gospel of Luke, one of the first things he does, he goes to the synagogue where he grew up and he preaches this sermon. So I thought, well, that comes early, so it must be important, because that's one of the way Gospels make an emphasis. They put it early. 
But the other one was, what about stories that are just prominent? And this one is probably my favorite. There's six different versions of Jesus feeding thousands of people with just a few loaves and fish out in the wilderness. But there's six versions of it. Well, I, I'm pretty sure if you hung around Jesus for a year in a coffee shop, this would be a good one to do it in, there'd be no way that you couldn't go out and him see somebody with a cardboard sign and him just like pretend he didn't see him. I've done that before. Or, you know, just kind of walk by or whatever. He, there's no way he wouldn't do something. I mean, it's just over and over and over. So I took placement and prominence and I put it in the blender and I came up with seven to sort of balance out the seven last words. So um, next slide. So I hear, here's my list, okay? So go ahead. The first one is in all the gospels he says to people, come follow me. What's crazy is he says it to the people you would never expect. He says it to fishermen, which would be pretty low in status. These are people who catch just enough to get by. They're not going to, you know, own a fleet of boats or anything like that. But he also says it to tax collectors. You know what they were? They didn't work for the IRS. They, went, they were Jews who went to work for the Roman Empire. So they were selling out their own people. And he also says it to zealots who were willing to kill Roman soldiers if they could get away with it. And this motley crew, he says, come and follow me. But it gets a lot more complicated because what really blew me away is he doesn't have the same rules for any of them. So he doesn't have this cookie cutter program. And if you'll do these seven things, you know, whatever, you'll turn your life around. He says to some people, like the fishermen, he says, leave your boat, leave your nets, leave your family, come and follow me. Other people, like there in Luke, there's these women that have him in their home and support his ministry out of their own pocket. And then he tells some other people, sell everything you have and come and follow me. And then in the very same chapter, he tells this other guy, well, half your possessions, that's enough. Well, I'm like, wait a second. You told me to sell everything? This guy only has to give away half? <laughs> this doesn't seem right. And so what you start to realize is he doesn't have a program. He has this relationship. And so he sees into the person and can see what, what it is they need. I mean, he says, here's the one thing you lack. You need to let go of all your possessions. But he doesn't say that to the next person. And so it's this relationship that's really quite powerful. Okay, second one. Um, oh, and by the way, that little phrase, studying under Jesus, if you ever heard the word disciple, it, it you know, it's a good Bible word, but we don't really use that word. <laughs> and... But if you have ever studied under someone, like in music, you don't just learn techniques, you learn their way of life, the way of life of a musician. And so that's really what the thing means. So the first thing he does in the Gospel of Luke is he preaches this sermon, and he uses this passage from the Bible in Isaiah that says, good news to the poor. So the first agenda ha Jesus has is addressing poverty. And he goes on to say, release to the captives or the prisoners. Well, that would have been debtor's prison. So it's not like he's going to Leavenworth and letting out everybody. It's, it's the system that has totally put the masses. So in Roman Empire, the elites, the rich, were like this 2% of the top. 
and there was no such thing as a middle class. There was just this very elite group, little bit of an elite group under them, and then boom, the masses. And the masses had nothing. Now, they didn't think like we did. Well, you know, if you get a degree, you could get a better job. They don't think getting ahead, but they want to live. They want life to be fair, and they are taxed out the wazoo. And this taxing is going to Herod, who's building all these palaces. And I just got back from Israel, and these palaces are so extravagant. You just can't imagine. And here's people just barely making it. And this is really what's going to get Jesus in trouble with Rome. Nobody in the Roman Empire cares if he tells stories about sheep. <laughs> right? I mean, the point of his stuff isn't about sheep. His point is always socioeconomic. Okay, third one. Um, there's this thing in the Gospel of Matthew called the Beatitudes, another word that nobody uses. And another word we don't use is the word that begins all of them, blessed are. Nobody uses this word, because this is not the word if someone sneezes and you say, bless you, that's not the word. The Greek has a word for that. But this word would be better translated esteemed or honored. So like if some friends of yours said, hey, our 15th wedding anniversary is coming up, and we would love for you to give the toast, and you say, oh, I'd be honored. Why, why do you feel honored? Well, you're because you're being honored, right? I mean, that's an honor. That's the word that he's using. But what's crazy is he's going to say that honored or esteemed, and it's going to be the exact opposite of the Roman Empire. He's going to say honored, esteemed are the poor in spirit. These are people who've lost all hope, all hope. How can they be esteemed or honored? He's going to say honored are the people who mourn. And that word was really... It's the kind of word you would describe Ukraine right now. The people there are mourning. That's the Greek word. And you don't, I mean, you, you wouldn't look at the people in Ukraine and say, wow, you are so honored. No, it, it turns everything upside down. The Roman Empire would say, hey, the, the strong, the conquerors inherit the earth. And Jesus says, no, honored are the meek. They're going to inherit the earth. And whereas Rome's em emperors ride into Jerusalem on stallions, Jesus comes clip-clopping into town on a donkey. It's just a total reversal of the Roman Empire. Okay, next. This is my favorite one, I'm pretty sure, probably because I wrote the book Table Talk. But um, I still just can't get over this. Six times we get the story of Jesus feeding thousands. There's only four versions of his resurrection, but there's six versions of him feeding people. And, in, and, and they're all different. They're all a little bit different, but they have this one punchline, and that is the disciples, seeing that it's getting late and that these people are probably hungry, they always say, you know, if we send them away so they can get something to eat. And you, you never quite know if the disciples are saying it because they're ready to get rid of these people, or, you know, they're like, well, these folks need to be going home to eat. But Jesus always says, you give them something to eat. And in every one of the accounts, there's leftovers. I mean, it's just a few loaves and fish, and thousands are fed, and there's leftovers. And the point's not, oh, my gosh, how do you do that? Well, everybody gets a tiny little piece. No, that's not the point. The point is the leftovers mean there is enough food 
on this planet to feed everybody. There is. And there, there's enough left over. But how does it get distributed? It was true then. It's true now. The elite, they're doing just fine. But not everybody is. And yeah, we have a middle class. But not everybody is doing fine. The next one is a little bit surprising in some ways, or maybe surprising is not the word, but it feels distant to us. Uh, there's a bunch, a bunch of stories about Jesus healing people. And he always says something like, in, in some translations, your faith has saved you, but saved you is not the right word. That word, it kind of has religious connotations of somehow getting saved. It really is the Greek word for made whole. Your trust has made you whole, and that's what he says when he heals them. But here's the thing. In the, in the ancient world, and actually even now in medical literature, the kind that only doctors read, they make a distinction between curing and healing. Curing is the work of doctors, but healing is really caring for the person. So, for instance, if you have a friend who has cancer, you hope there's a medical team trying to cure them, get them well. But healing is when you say, hey, I'm going to bring you dinner, and you give them a foot rub. That's the work of healing. Um, and, it, and it's a very, very powerful kind of thing. As one person told me, well, healing's what doctors do and nurses do curing, or, or vice versa. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you want to hold that you know, steadfast, but you get the point is what about all the people, and I, I, just, I don't know if you heard this this morning on National Public Radio, in Montana, there's one mental health hospital in the entire state. Now, I, I know they got more cows than people, but the point is there are tons of people in jail that they know have mental illness. They are in there because they have a mental illness, and they can't get them into the hospital because it's full, and this one girl they were talking about, young woman, She's been in jail for one year. She sits in her cell with a blanket over her head. She has a mental illness. That, that's the, doing something about that is the work of healing. That would be healing in our day. So I'm not saying that if you want to follow Jesus, you need to go around and, you know, touch people on crutches and say, you're healed, or, you know, it's not like the televangelist kind of thing. Okay, next one. Jesus told a bunch of parables somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 or 40 of them. You've probably heard a bunch of them at different times. But they mostly begin with this little phrase, the kingdom of God is like. And the is like means he's going to tell you about sheep or he's going to tell you about this woman baking bread, and you're supposed to figure out what that means. But the first little phrase is the key. The, the Greek for kingdom of God is the exact same wording for the empire of Rome. The empire of God is what he's telling you about. So when he tells a story and he says, you know, the empire of God is like this, what he's really saying is, it's not like the empire of Rome. You know, in the empire of God, Samaritans stopped to help Jewish travelers. Well, that's not going to happen in the Roman empire. In the empire of God, and, and so it's this brilliant kind of really political satire. And it sneaks up on you because he's just, you know, he's just talking about sheep. But eventually Rome figures it out, right? Okay, and then the last one, love of God and neighbor. 
you may remember Jesus gets quizzed. He sometimes gives the quiz. But the, the question is, what's the greatest commandment? And they take these two and they put them together. Love of God, love of neighbor. But it's really interesting because he says, um, the first commandment is love the Lord your God. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But the phrase is like it means literally it's on the exact same plane. You can't separate them. So when the question is, what's the, the one greatest commandment? The answer is two. <laughs> Love God and neighbor. And you can't, you can't put a little dash in between. can't sever it. You can't say, I just absolutely love God and then trash the trans person who moved into your neighborhood. You, you, you can't separate these. And you can't draw a line and say, well, this is my neighbor, but this is not. Everybody's neighbor. And so that's the seven. So um, what's, your, what's your thinking about those? Or thoughts, questions, comments? You want to talk about it? Ask questions? I don't know. What do you want to do? Anything jump out at you on the list? I can be patient. Yeah, which I think is the whole point of the coffee shop wine with Jesus thing, right? Over a year, you're going to go, you know, he's into a lot of stuff, but man, he's always talking about feeding the poor. And feeding the poor is such an easy thing to do. I, I don't mean we can cure it, you know, like fix the world's ills, but you can tomorrow feed the poor. I mean, you, you can. You can put granola bars in your car, and at every corner you can hand them out, and you can do other things, too. I tried, by the way, in the book to not just do these gospel stories, but to do storytelling from our day. But I try so hard in each chapter to say, here's what you can really do and to be as concrete as, as you know, possible um, because I don't, want, I don't want people to just go, wow, that was interesting, I, I, you know, but what do I do about it? Um, and so I try to get practical. Yes? Hearing what? Hearing versus oh, hearing. yeah. Sometimes I feel like, oh, that's that's not that's not the thing that God is doing, uh, because 
right. Yeah, I mean, I tell the story in the book about this friend who was dying and how in our church, this group of people signed up to at least once a week go and read to him. He was pretty much imprisoned in his body. He couldn't talk. He couldn't move. He could hear and think fine. Couldn't communicate. But he loved to read. So people would just go and read to him. That's, that's healing. I mean, that's what the Bible would describe as healing. Mm-hmm. I really like how um, you talked about like how you follow the Lord and how that was like the beginning of your relationship with God and how you like now offer to like I I believe that you offer to like heal people and I just how can you just over and over again just right. say so I like the idea of separating that from like the attitude of the Yeah. Yeah. Um, so go to the next slide. I, I think it'd be really hard to rank the seven, and I don't even try to. I just put them in the order that you just saw in the book. But there's a but. <laughs> there's this biblical scholar, John Dominic Crossan. He's one of my favorites. And he has this book called The Essential Jesus. And here's what he did. He dared to say there were two things that really were, that if, if you had coffee with him for a year, this is what you'd be stuck with uh, or struck by. Um, and the way he did it was not only looking at the Gospels, but earliest Christian artwork before the year 325. The year 325 is when Constantine becomes the emperor of Rome and he converts to Christianity. Well, from that point on, it's, it's a new ball game. But before that, the earliest Christians, there were two things that you could see if you walked around looking at the artwork. Now, you know, you understand this wasn't museums with, oh, that's a nice piece, but mosaics, that kind of thing. And the two things were feeding and healing, which we looked at. So there it is again, feeding and healing. And what struck me about the list, if you go back to the seven, the other five are teachings. So what I'm saying here is, if you look and read the Gospels, read them and read them and read them, and just look for what does Jesus do, not what does he say, he says a lot of stuff, but what does he do? All he does is feed people and heal them. <laughs> Otherwise, he's teaching. So, I mean, the teaching, I'm not minimizing it, the teaching's really important, but what he does with his time is feed people and heal people. And, you know, you could, you could do worse <laughs> than to give your life to doing those kind of things. Thank you for listening to this episode. Keep on working.